welcome to the well. For those of you on, for those of you online, um, we are so glad that you are joining with us this morning on this wonderful Mother's Day. Uh, my name is Joshua Cahill. I'm the lead pastor here, and I am so excited uh, to to be speaking uh, today um, on Mother's Day. Um, to be honest with you, leading up to this message, I was actually uh, really nervous. Um, nobody wants to come, especially a guy, right? No guy wants to come and talk to moms on Mother's Day. Um, I'm not a mother. You guys are supposed to laugh. Okay, just making sure you're awake this morning. Um, and so today, though, I'm, I'm actually very grateful for what God has given me to speak on. Um, though I will not talk so much about uh, the actual mess of motherhood, uh, motherhood is messy. Moms, would you agree? Motherhood before you... Um, how many of you um, had the quote-unquote mess of motherhood before you got to church this morning? Yeah, thanks for being honest in church. I appreciate it. Now, uh, today's message is going to be something not typical. Um, I typically would have us go to a single portion of Scripture, uh, but today we're actually going to be in two different portions of Scripture. And so, uh, for those of you who have a Bible, um, get it out, turn it on, uh, let's get prepared to read God's Word. Can I get my mic turned down just a teeny bit? And so uh, I would like you to please go with me first to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. So the first book of the New Testament, chapter 1, chapter 1. And we're going to pick up here, and we're just going to read a couple of verses uh, to start us out this morning. Start us out. All right, and so it says here, in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1, and it says that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah and Ram the father of Amira, and by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. Everyone say Aminadab. Great. And Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon. This is literally like salmon, but it's not. It's pronounced Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Father of King David. Now, I wonder, um, and I bet that each one of you thought that I indicated the wrong text. I just read a list of names, um, which if you ever have read the Old Testament, there are huge portions of Scripture that all it is is so-and-so begot so-and-so and begot so-and-so, and there's like 75 verses in a row, and you're like, those are the por anyone, those are the portions of Scripture that you skip? You're like, I don't even know how to pronounce three-quarters of those, and so we're just, anybody? So now, you may have may have thought, well, maybe the pastor is going to lead us in a different direction because he said that he was going to read another portion of Scripture. Or that I caught my mistake and all of a sudden I'm going to admit that I was wrong. That's not going to happen. I'm going to bring us now, though, to that passage of Scripture that we just read, Matthew chapter 1. That is the text 
as well as another one here in just a little bit that God led me to for this particular Sunday. Now I want to explain why. You see, a lot of preachers today will be preaching probably out of the book of Proverbs 31. Book and chapter. Proverbs 31. And I would say that that's maybe an appropriate text for Mother's Day. And if you're not familiar with that passage of Scripture, it's the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs. Now, theologians believe, I believe, because of the writing, that it was written by Solomon, the wisest man um, outside of Christ, to have walked on this earth. But the thing that I struggle with is that Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. And so I would like to know which wife he was talking about in Proverbs 31. That was another joke. You're supposed to laugh. Great. Thank you, Bible scholars. But here, I want, I want to read to you, though, just a few verses out of Proverbs 31. Now, in my Bible, it says the heading here is in praise of a capable wife. In praise of a capable wife. Wife, I'm just going to read, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read in verse number 10. It says, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ship of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maiden. I'm going to skip down a few verses and just read a few more. It says she makes bed coverings for herself and her cloth is fine linen and purple and her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land and she makes linen garments and sells them and she delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of, of idleness. It means she constantly is doing something. Mom, does that resonate with you? Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her children. And it says in her husband also, and he praises her. Now I want to stop right there for just a moment. Proverbs 31, when I think of this, I think the ideal woman was described over 3,000 years ago. The ideal woman. And I believe that she's been intimidating women ever since. She's been intimidating. Moms, would you agree with that? That is an intimidation. And I did not even read all of it. This Wonder Woman of Proverbs 31, rises before dawn and stays busy until the late hours of the night. The Wonder Woman. We have developed a mental image of moms and how they should look according to Proverbs 31. She is supposed to be the, the one who has the looks of a movie star. She is supposed to be the one that has the domestic abilities of a master chef. The stamina of a world-class athlete. The intellect of a, a professor that has multiple PhDs. She is supposed to have the tenacity of a political operative. The wisdom of a godly missionary. 
She's supposed to be and have the sensitivity of Mother Teresa, the business sense of a Fortune 500 company uh, executive. She's supposed to have the grace of an expert in etiquette and the spirituality of the Virgin Mary herself. And it's no wonder why mothers leave church feeling down on Mother's Day. No wonder. And so as I began to read through Proverbs 31 and I began to read through Matthew chapter 1 and look at just a brief lineage of Jesus Christ, I began to ask myself this very question. What about all of the mothers who come to churches on Mother's Day and say, what if I don't quite measure up? What if I will never be a Proverbs 31 woman? What if that's not me? Is there any hope for me in this place? Can God still use me if I don't mimic Proverbs 31? But really, not just for mothers in here. I believe that every person has times and circumstances in our lives when we ask ourselves those same questions. Am I good enough? Can God use me? Can God take all of my past failures and all of my pain and all of my suffering and can he still utilize me to reach people today? And I believe we find our answer in Matthew chapter 1. There are four women that I mentioned in our reading, and these were all mothers. Mothers that I would categorize as checkered or tainted past women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, all of them. And then there's one that's unnamed, and it says Uriah's wife, but her name is Bathsheba. These four women are talked about in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. But what happens with these four women? Maybe you're in here and you're like, I've never heard their stories. I have no idea who those four women are. Well, I'm going to tell you just a brief, brief synopsis of all four of their stories. And we're going to run through them quickly. The first one that's mentioned in the, the genealogy of Jesus is the woman Tamar. Now, there is not a soap opera around today that compares to Tamar's story. Not even close. Tamar marries... Uh, She's the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was Jacob's son, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Tamar married Judah's first son, Ur, and Ur dies. And so because of their laws and because of their customs, she was then supposed to be passed on to the next son because she had not given birth to a child. So when Ur, how crazy is that? Women, imagine if your husband died and you had to marry their brother. I see some of you looking at me like, I'd kill myself before that. (laughs) So Ur dies, and Tamar is then given to the next son of Judah. The next son of Judah, Onan. And he is ordered to carry out the custom in in the Jewish law of that day. And all of a sudden, Onan dies. So two of Tamar's husbands die. Now Judah is like, she is not having my third and last son. And so he does away with Tamar. Childless. 
She's left with no kids, no husband, no one to care for her. And in that day, if you were a cast out widow, you would starve to death and die because no one took care of you. That was Tamar's life. And she does the unthinkable. When her mother-in-law dies, she dresses up as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law just so she can have a kid. She's desperate. And in her desperation, she made bad choices. In her desperation, she made bad choices. Now, she thought she was justified because of the law. But you want to know what's scary? In that day, to be labeled as a prostitute was to be one who worshipped a pagan god. She chose to be labeled as a one-time prostitute. She chose as a Jewish woman. She chose to be the one who represented someone who bows down to the false idol. Tamar here represents the one who makes selfish decisions for personal gain. Selfish decisions for personal gain. The next person we come to in the story is Rahab. We see and hear about her life in Joshua chapter 2. The spies are coming in to scout out the land, and Rahab's house is the one that is used to protect them. Tamar was a one-time prostitute. Rahab, she's labeled her profession is that of a prostitute, meaning that's all she's ever known. That's all she's ever done. And when we meet her, she is described in that way. Often in scripture, you see people's names with their profession linked to it. So Matthew, who wrote to Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, was a tax collector. So they say Matthew the tax collector. Rahab, the prostitute. The prostitute. Now you don't even learn in Joshua chapter 2 that she had children. But now we do and we know that she was the mother of Boaz. Boaz would then be the one who married the next person in Jesus' genealogy, and that's Ruth. Now, you may be more familiar with Ruth's story, but before we get there, so Tamar was the one who made selfish decisions for personal gain. Rahab represents the person who cannot dodge their past. They cannot dodge their past. There's always someone or something that is there to remind them of it. And then you come to Ruth, the one who has an entire book of the Bible named after her. Ruth's story is one of tragedy. Famine leads to the death of all of the men in her immediate family. Her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law. And if you go back and read, and I would challenge you today, after you go and spend time with your mom... Go home and don't turn on the TV and don't play games. Go home and read the book of Ruth. You will be amazed at the content that is there and the picture of the king that would come, Christ. But Ruth's story, you see that this tragedy allows Ruth to show her devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. You see it. And she returns to the land of promise. But I want you to not miss something here. Ruth was not an Israelite. Ruth was a Moabite. 
So what is so tainted about Ruth's past? Well, Moabites started, the clan of the Moabites started from incest. So Ruth was checkered because she came from incest. And that's all she knew, was marrying within my own family. Ruth came from a place that was notoriously pagan. And she represents the people who cannot shake their roots. The people who cannot shake their roots. And then Bathsheba, the unnamed woman. It says Uriah's wife. We're probably most familiar with Bathsheba's story. As she is known with her sin with King David. Now her story is really the sin of, of King David. But it takes two people to commit adultery. It takes two. Bathsheba represents those who give in to temptation. So there you have it. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Spirit, pens the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that record, four women, all outsiders, all with tainted pasts. So what do we learn? What do we learn from these women? Well, there is a man who wrote a good portion of the New Testament who would have heard of these women. His name was Paul. Paul, for those of you who do not know, though was a Roman soldier, came from a Jewish background. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. He would have heard about Rahab and how she protected the spies. He would have heard about Ruth and all of the things that occurred that led to Boaz and, and then led to Jesse that led to King David. Paul would have heard and he tells us what we can learn from these women and how God used them. And so I need you now to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3 and I'm going to answer the question, what can we learn from these women? What can we learn? It says, finally, brothers, in verse number one of Philippians 3, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for me. Verse number two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I have... My, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about salvation here. Salvation. 
But look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now, Lord, and I I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall fresh in this place right now. God, I'm begging and asking of you to help us see what we can learn from these four women, the things that you used in their life to bring about this very passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 3. God, help us to have open hearts and open minds this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. The first thing I want us to see this morning, what we can learn from these women, what Paul would have known is that we need to stop comparing ourselves to others. We need to stop comparing ourselves to others. In Philippians 3, we just read, Paul shared with the church that our righteousness came through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that passage of scripture, Paul tells us that we should be absolutely satisfied with Jesus, but no way satisfied with ourself. No way satisfied with ourself. For many of us, we live in a very place and a life of comparison. We constantly compare our lives to other people, and depending on who the person is or how much they have or how successful they seem, once we make the comparison, we either feel much worse about ourselves or we feel way better than we should. And both of, those, both of those, feeling worse or feeling better, stem from a position of pridefulness. Stem from a position of pridefulness. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, meaning one who is arrogant. An arrogant person, having, having arrogant spirit, means that you will fall, God's word tells us. But look at this next one. 2 Corinthians 10, 7 says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. It's not me telling myself that I'm better. There are more than a hundred verses in the Bible that speak to pridefulness. And another 85 that speak to discontentment. And both pride and discontentment stem from the same place, people. And that place is an issue of the heart. It's a heart problem. Pride. Discontentment. Mark 7, 20 through 23 says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Pride leads to comparisons and comparisons are traps traps and they are the trap that most of us find ourselves in on a regular basis the truth is though that we need to recognize that we cannot find joy I'm talking like lasting joy cannot be found in this life as long as we carry around pride so the answer 
is to stop comparing yourselves to others. Stop comparing yourselves. Paul said several things in those 10 verses that we read. Several things. Paul said that we are not perfect. Would you guys agree with that? Raise your hand if you're perfect. Put your hands down. (laughs) Paul said that we have not arrived. I didn't mean to trick you. Paul said that we're not perfect. We have not arrived. We have not attained anything in this life except for salvation through Christ if we're a Christian. He said that we are a work in progress. Sanctification has to continue in the life of a believer. We've been talking about that for weeks and weeks and weeks. We cannot be chiseled more into the image of Christ unless we're obedient to Scripture. And Scripture tells us that we are to not compare ourselves to anyone except for Christ himself. And when we look at Christ and we compare ourselves to Christ, guess what? We're like, we're never going to attain to that. And so we want you to chisel out of us all of the bad. There's not a single person on this earth, people, that will ever attain to the perfectionism that is found in Christ. No, no human on this earth. So stop looking at your spouse. Stop looking at your kid. Stop looking at me as your pastor or my wife or someone in a a place of leadership. They're never going to be perfect. They're going to fail and they're going to fall because we're all sinners. The only person that we should compare ourselves to is Christ himself. Jesus is the standard to measure our life by, not other people. 1 Samuel tells us that the Lord sees not as man sees, because man looks at the outward, but God himself looks at the heart. The heart. So stop comparing yourselves to others. The next thing I want us to see is that we have to stop allowing our past to control our future. Stop allowing your past to control your future. We are a product of our past, but we do not have to be prisoners to that. I'm going to say that again. We are a product of our past, but we do not have to be prisoners to that. I want to read to you. Verse number 13 in Philippians 3, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead. And this next one is my life verse. It says, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I continue to focus my eyes on God. Always. Always. You can not change your past, but we can change our perspective on our past. We cannot change our past, but we can change our perspective on our past. Paul saying, I chose to forget the things that were behind me. He did not mean that he forgot everything. That's not what he said. He said, I chose to do this, learn from my mistakes, and I'm going to continue to press forward. 
That's what Paul was saying. Too many of us choose to focus on the past, and whether our past is good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, you need to know that you cannot live there any longer. We have to learn to leave our past behind. But for many of us, we set up a tent and we think, I'm just going to camp right here. I'm going to stay right here. And if you're in one of those places, I challenge you right now, this morning, to pull up up the stakes of your tent. Pack up your gear and walk away. Walk away. Strain towards what is forward. Do not live in your past any longer because guess what? It keeps you in a place that is detrimental to your walk with Jesus Christ. As a new believer, as a Christian, Paul tells us himself that in Christ we are a new creation. That means we do not have to live in our old life anymore. Why did Paul say in in Romans 8.1 that we are no more in a place of condemnation for those that are found in Christ Jesus? Why is that? Well, because guess what? The blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross when you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, it takes away all of your past. It takes it away. So get up. Pack up. Move. Several years ago, I I believe it was maybe three or four years ago, um, we were living in Florida, and a hurricane um, had come through. Hurricane Irma. Beautiful name. Hurricane Irma came through. Um, and there was a ton of, of wind and rain, and it did some great damage to a property that was really close to our church. It, that, the property had been left in the same family for over six generations. And on that property, um, there was a pear tree, an absolutely beautiful pear tree. And the, the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids for years and years and years grew up eating the fruit off of this pear tree. The wind came, and the winds came, and it completely uprooted and destroyed that pear tree that had been there as long as anyone could remember. And there was a a man who went to our church who passed away just before we left, and his name was John, and he was 103 years old. Man had seen so many things in his life. And I went over to his house. He was the oldest living relative uh, in that family. And I went to his house because we were helping him clean up his property. And he said, while we were sitting on his back porch, he said, I remember climbing that tree as a child. I remember picking the fruit, and I've been eating it as long as I can remember. And I was like, John, I'm really sorry about your pear tree. And he said, yeah, me too. It was a really important part of my past. And so I was sitting there, and And he got a tear in his eye and he said, I grew up with that tree. And so I was like, John, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to put in a new pear tree? Or, sorry, a new peach tree? And he said, well, well, pastor, 
I, I, I plan to do as best as I can to pick up all of the good fruit that's still on that tree. And then I'm going to burn the rest. And as I was sitting there, I had this thought that that's how we should deal with our past. We pick the best and burn the rest. We pick the best and we burn the rest. Paul said, I, I do not forget what lies behind. I just look forward to what's ahead. I just look forward to what's ahead. Because that's all he had. There are so many times in my life where I have had to pray and ask God to help me remember to forget. Help me remember to forget the things of my past. And that right here is exactly what Paul is saying. I'm going to continue looking forward because I know what lies ahead. I may not know everything that happens on this earth, but I do know that at the end of my life, I will be standing before a holy God in a place of perfection. And so I'm going to continue to strive towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God that is only found in Christ Jesus. Satan has no future, people. None. The Bible the Bible is very clear that Satan has no future. It says in the book of Revelation that in the end, Satan will be cast into the fiery pit. Into the fiery pit. And he will spend his eternity there, separated from God because he made a choice. He made a choice that he wanted to be separated from God. He made a choice that said, in pride, I think I can place myself above God. And guess where it ended? It ended with him in complete separation from him in the fiery pit. He has no future, but Satan wants to take away the future of people. He does. And guess what? He wants us to be in that same place with him in the fiery pit, separated from God. But guess what? The good news is, is we do not have to be his prisoners. Uh, people, get excited about that. We do not have to be prisoners of Satan. Satan wants us to stay in our past so that he can hold us in a place of condemnation. And Christ Jesus tells us that in him we have no condemnation. We have an option, people. We have an option to pick the best and burn the rest. Jesus gave us proof of his grace. God penned the words in Matthew chapter 1 of these four women, and we see the ancestors of Jesus receiving God's grace time and time and time and time again. Why would he stop giving grace now? Why? He's not going to. We have an opportunity to accept that grace and become a part of his family and continue to walk and live in that. But we've got to stop comparing ourselves to others. And we have to stop allowing our past to control our future. Stop. And the third thing that we need to see is that we need to start being the person that God has called us to be. 
Start being the person that God has called us to be. Verse number 15 says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the, exam- the example you have in us. Paul is telling us that there is a time to grow up and that time is now. That time is now. Do you know that Paul wrote just a little while earlier to another church that when I was a child I spoke like a child? Uh, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away or I gave up my childish ways. He threw them away. Moms, would you guys agree that there's nothing more precious and beautiful than a newborn baby who's asleep in your arms? Would you guys agree with that? I remember the first time that I lay, laid eyes on Israel, our oldest. It was our, our first child that I, I got to hold. And there were complications, and it was an emergency C-section, and we weren't sure if he was going to make it. And when they pulled him out of my wife, um, he didn't cry. And he laid there lifeless in the OR. And I was like, God, this cannot be. You've already taken one of our children. And I began praying, and I was like, God, I, I want to hold my kid. Let me, please, please. And now I, I want to hold his life-filled body, not his lifeless There's nothing more precious and more beautiful than a baby. The things that they do, the little noises that they make. Still to this day, our youngest, Jedediah, does and says things that we laugh and laugh and laugh uncontrollably about at 18 months. What makes us laugh, what makes us awestruck over our kids would be absolutely annoying if our 20-year-old did those same things. Or our teenager. Or our 8-year-old. Imagine your adult children or your teenager coming in, crawling, and whining, and asking for a bottle. Asking, could you imagine trying to pick up your adult children? Mom? Mom? I think that those are the pictures that we should take, Kathy. Uh, moms trying to hold their kids. Let, let's recreate photos from their... It's not funny anymore when our kids hit a certain age and they act like babies. It's just not funny. It's not cute. It's immature. But maturity does not come automatically. It happens with time with correction, with truth. That's how maturity comes. Paul is saying, grow up. If you are mature, or if you want to be mature, then this is how you should think. It's a fact 
that the more you mature, the more you realize how far you are from Christ. That's what happens when you mature. Listen, this is what Jesus himself said in his ministry. He said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm striving to become perfect. And though I will not arrive until I'm dead, I can still strive and I should strive for that. Because it's, it's annoying when you live like a kid, when you're not a kid anymore. Paul described the, the process of growth and he says, I, I compare the Christian life to that of, of a race, a marathon. It's a journey that we're on. And there's a race that's been set before every single one of us. There was a starting line and that was the moment of conception. That was your starting line. And the finish line is when we will stand before the righteous and holy God. That's the finish line for us. And the goal, the goal is to reach the finish line and be awarded the prize of eternity. Eternity. And guess what? That's being with Jesus. That's being with Daddy. In a place of perfection. With no more pain. No more sorrow. No more tears. We will be in the very presence of the one who died for our tears and our pain and our sorrow. Paul said the prize is Jesus and he has taken a hold of me but I have not taken a hold of him completely. He said I'm, I'm learning but I have quite a ways to go. Would you guys agree with that? I have quite a ways to go. You know that many runners lose the race because of a very simple mistake. They look back to see where the other runners are. They look back. And when you get tripped up or become afraid, then someone's going to catch up. And for a runner, that's the mistake that they make, and it is for you, and it is for me. Our eyes are to be pointing forward, not behind. We are to be looking at the future, not the past. No matter how successful we are in the eyes of man, we will not receive our reward until we're walking with the Lord. Do you know that Jesus did not take a hold of us to stay where we are? He did not take a hold of us for us to stay where we were. Like, that's not, that's not why. In salvation, we aren't just to, to be saved and then live like the devil. That's not what this was about. Jesus did not take a hold of us for, for us to suddenly turn in the opposite direction. Jesus did not take a hold of us so that we would suddenly drop out of the race of life. 
He did not go all of this way and go to the cross for us to come to the end and quit. He lived and he died. And as a beautiful song was written many years ago, they said that was the end of the beginning. His death was the end of the beginning. Christ has not returned. At least I hope not, because that would not be good for any of us. He has not returned. It's not over. We have, we have not attained perfection. There was a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. Some of you may know who she is. She was an Olympic swimmer. In 1952, she decided that she was going to swim some 26 miles alone from the Catalina Islands to the coast of California. It was extremely foggy. She had boats that were with her that shot at sharks that she was not eaten alive. Fifteen hours into her journey... The fog became so bad that she could no longer see the boats on either side of her. She could hear the voices, but she could not see the boats. Sharks were surrounding her. Shots were constantly being fired. Her trainer tried to encourage her to continue swimming in the direction that she was. He kept saying to her, Florence, we're close to land. We're close to land. But she quit because she could not see. One mile from land, she quit. Her journey was never completed. She interviewed a few weeks after that journey and she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land... I would have finished. If I could see the land, I would have finished. She said it wasn't the cold, it was not the fear or the exhaustion that caused her to fail because she could not see. She could not see. Many times we as believers fail not because we're afraid or because of peer pressure, or because of anything other than the fact that we lost sight of the goal, of the prize. And I believe that is why Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God that is found only in Christ Jesus. I believe that's why Paul said that very thing here in this chapter. Two months later, Florence Chadwick walked off that same beach in the Catalina Islands and into the same water, and she swam all 26 miles. Eight weeks later, she swam all 26 miles. And in that time, she set a new record for speed 
because she could see the goal, the end. I can see it. You're in here today, and you're not where you need to be in your walk with Christ. It's likely because you've placed your eyes in the wrong direction. Placed your eyes in the wrong direction. So church, friends, what if you don't quite measure up? What if you don't quite measure up? Mom, what if, what if you're not a Proverbs 31 woman? What if you're not? There's hope. There's hope for you, Mom. There's hope for you, wife. There's hope for you, Christian. If God could use Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, and if God can still use people today, which I believe he can and he does, then there's hope. We have to stop comparing ourselves to others. We have to stop allowing our past to control our future. And we have to start being the person that God has called us to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you on this Mother's Day that we can look to your word for guidance, for instruction, for clarity. God, I pray in this place right now that it doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, what we are going through, God, that we would look to you, that we would strive to head forward, that we would press on towards the goal even when it's messy. Even when it's hard, even when we cannot see that we would continue to press into you. Because there is one thing that we can always find, and that is your presence in this very word. You never leave us or forsake us. Your word tells us that, God. And so I pray that we would see that truth this morning. Wherever we are, God, that we would press into you. God, give us the strength to be obedient to your word. Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.